Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and to tonight's event, Shaping a Better Future, which is sponsored by the Open University in Scotland. I'm Val McDermott and I'm proud to be a graduate of the OU. And I'm Joe Sharp. Val and I can sit so closely together because in modern parlance, we are a bubble. And we're delighted to be joined by three uh, fellow panelists at a, an appropriate distance. We have uh, Joe Clifford here in the studio with us and also Doug Johnson. And at a, an even greater distance, joining us from Aberdeen is Leila Abulayla. And so we're here tonight to talk about this book, Imagine a Country, a collection of short essays about an imagined country that people would like to live in. Last year's Edinburgh International Book Festival theme was, we need new stories. The words of many speakers last year crystallized our concerns about what had happened to public discourse. It seemed to both of us that debate had been debased, reduced to 280 characters, that nuance had been consigned to the scrap heap, that we'd all been pushed into stark opposition, shouting at each other from our silos. Slogans were replacing discussion, a tool for repression if ever there was one. In the public sphere, in the world of politics, conversation was continually being replaced by confrontation. So many authors touched on those fears last year. Then along came a wee Scottish woman with a different message, a message of hope. Ali Smith may not be here in person tonight, but she's given her blessing to me reading her contribution to Imagine a Country. Once there was a small gang of kids. Well, I say small, maybe seven or eight of them, maybe 20, maybe 50. Here they come right now, roistering round the corner with their arms linked, past the lamppost, past the waste grounds left over from the bombing in the last war, past the past, past the crazy money towers of the Boris Johnson city, then right past the present because they're on their way to the future. They're pals for life, forging along the pavement, and they're singing this song, a simple song. It goes, one planet Earth, there's only one planet Earth. One planet Earth, there's only one planet Earth. They don't know it because they're young, but the tune they're singing is an old one, the tune of a song called Huantanamera, about a place in the world that's beautiful, though nowadays cynical people have turned it into the foulest sort of prison. But that old song's words hold the place's older story of an old truthful man. He's dying. He wants, before he goes, to tell the story of his soul and the place he lives, and how these two things, soul and place, are rooted together. He sings about the sea, and how he loves the beautiful little mountain streams, and how what's been wounded in life can come to the mountains to heal, and how all things grow, whether they're flowers or friendship or understanding, and how the way to deal with the bad times and with the cruelty of cynical people is to turn to the earth cultivate its beauty, help it grow the beautiful things. But back to the gang of kids singing and forging ahead along the pavement because behind them, look, there's a swell of people, a swell that started as a stream and is now the size of a sea. No, maybe several seas, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, so many that they're the size of a country themselves. Together, they make a whole new country. 
No, a continent. All the people rebelling right now across the world at how this world with all its countries and continents is being treated. All the people who give a damn. People of all ages, genders, persuasions, shoe sizes, walking alongside a small gang of more than a million kids, all refusing to go to school till their countries get educated about what's happening. Then the plants and the flowers that know they're threatened are pulling their roots out of the ground like they've just heard a mythical Orpheus. And they're hurrying along too, dragging dribs and drabs of earth and clean soil, sweet-smelling, all across the pavements of the city. And they've got their branches round the shoulders of those singing kids and the shoulders of those people who are giving a damn. And with them, all round them now, baying and barking and mewling and squeaking and growling and flapping like a massive Noah's Ark parade are all the creatures of the earth, air and sea, likely to go extinct pretty soon too. The leopards and rhinos and orangutan and gorillas and turtles and tigers and elephants and porpoises and wild dogs and ferrets and whales and huge tuna fishes with blue fins and chimps and bonobos and penguins and dolphins and pandas and sea lions and seals and sharks and hippos and iguanas and bears and polar bears standing on a sliver of ice and jaguars and plovers and bison and foxes and macaws and tree kangaroos and butterflies and salmon and frogs and right at the back the sloths. And they're all singing the song, look up. All around them in the air above the march, invisible, evanescent, the spirits of all the already extinct species, the gone mammals and insects and fish, the dead plant life, the burnt black trees and creepers waving their ashy leaves, and with them all the spirits of the people and creatures who've already perished because of what's being done to where they live. And even some life forms from other planets are zooming down through the galaxies and joining the march. They can't not because they know too, like the kids are singing, that there's only one planet Earth. There's only one planet Earth. One planet Earth. There's only one planet Earth. And those kids at the front of the Great March on their way to the future spill across the borders like borders can be just dissolved, like they're not real. And they stop outside the houses of government and the banks and the offices of the huge conglomerates and industries and media giants and tech giants and oil companies because they plan to look them straight in the eye. The politicians and the rubbish world leaders and the CEOs who are all looking pretty embarrassed, pretty shifty, the smirkers and the shirkers of real responsibility. So they settle themselves down. They are not going away till this is sorted. And this story hasn't got an end because everyone in it who gives a damn is working against the kind of end that ends everything. Seven or eight kids, a new country, with all their urgent patience, they sing it again and again, then again. One planet Earth, there's only one planet Earth. One planet Earth, there's only one. Now, I grew up in Thatcher's Britain with her Tina mantra, there is no alternative. The belief that this is just the way of the world, there's no point trying to change it, is the complete opposite of the kind of hope that radiates from Ali's words. Imagination is not frivolous. It's not a luxury. It's an absolute necessity to challenge things. For if we can't imagine different and better worlds. How is it possible to begin to instigate the changes needed to get there? So this is where the idea of the book came from. 
And as is so often the way with these things, uh, a few glasses of wine may have been involved in the process. Uh, some glasses of red wine consumed in the, in the summer evenings at the end of a day at the book festival. Seems so uh, unlike us. I know it's not unlike us, it's not like us at all, really. Um, but conversations take place, and in the course of these conversations, Joe said, someone should write a book to show how to enact change, that you have to first imagine it. In the morning, I discovered I had agreed to do just that. <laughs> We'd always sworn that we would never work together. We somehow thought that this might be the end of our relationship if we actually had to do a job together. <laughs> but maybe this book is a kind of living metaphor for what is possible when very different styles and approaches come together. You'd have been lost without my spreadsheets. I would have been lost without your spreadsheet. I don't do spreadsheets. <laughs> she really doesn't do spreadsheets. <laughs> So we didn't want to have a book with a, an agenda or a singular vision. We wanted to take heed of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's warning of the dangers of a single story. We are conscious that one person's utopia is another's dystopia. And so we invited a vibrant, impertinent, authoritative, insightful, gallus rabble of co-conspirators. Not all, we, all whom we invited uh, were able to contribute, or indeed wanted to contribute. But those who did had a tall order to get their piece to us within a month, which most did, more or less. No one got paid for this, and all profits from this book will be shared uh, between the Scottish Book Trust, Shelter Scotland, Scotland's, uh, Scottish Women's Aid, Refugee, and Reforesting Scotland. So we sent out the invitations and we did have one or two worries and concerns. Uh, the first worry was nobody would say yes. And we'd be sitting there in a room going, like, how are we going to do this then if nobody said yes? And then when uh, people started to say yes, uh, we were worried they were all going to come up with the same things. And we'd have essentially a book that was 100 essays of who's against sin. But that couldn't have been further from what actually happened. I was astonished by the range of ideas that poured in. We, we edited this book when we were in New Zealand last year. We were there as visiting professors at Otago University in Dunedin. And uh, so the time lag meant that things came in in bunches. We either got them first thing in the morning, and that was a really exciting way to start the day. We'd get something coming in on in the email in the morning, and we'd be sitting over our cup of coffee going, oh, have you seen this one? It's really interesting. Or, oh, I'm not sure about that. Maybe if we, if we speak to them about tweaking it a bit. But, but what they're saying is really good. They just need to say it better. And, and there was a lot of very avid conversations going on. And then another chunk would come in last thing at night, and we'd, we'd try to be sort of, oh, we'll, we'll save it till the morning. We won't look at them now, but we never did. We don't have that discipline. No, we were that discipline, but, but it was a lot of excitement uh, on the other side of the world when these all started coming in. Uh, and there were surprises, surprises of, of what people chose to write about, not what you'd expect from them. Um, many of you will be familiar with, with Stuart Cosgrove, uh, who is an expert on Detroit soul music and soul music in general in America and the black civil rights movement, and also has the most irreverent uh, sports programme on, on the radio, Off the Ball, where he, uh, with Tam Cowan, dissects Scottish football. Um, you might have expected something about sport or, or music from Stuart, but instead he wrote what for me is one of the most moving pieces in the book uh, about why is, that, why is it that there is no place for people to mourn, no public place for people to mourn stillbirth and miscarriage, and proposing that we should have areas set aside in our public parks for just that duty. Anne Glover, the president of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, eminent scientist, uh, gave us her fashion tips for a zero-carbon world. 
Chris Brookmeyer, a man with a reputation for, shall we say, sweariness, <laughs> did a really thoughtful piece about the importance of philosophy for children in schools. So there were surprises along the way every day for us, really. And if nothing else, it demonstrates the imaginative resources this small country of ours possesses. Now, we're about to hear more from our three panellists who are going to, uh, to, to read and talk about uh, their contributions. But before that, uh, I just want to give you a bit of a flavour of some of the other 94 contributions uh, to this book. Lynn Anderson's vision sees highland landscapes being remade for all instead of just uh, the pleasures of the few, a view shared by Zoe Strachan, who wants to rewrite the rules of the glorious 12th to stack the odds a bit more in the favour of the birds. Likewise, Cameron McNeish, who unfortunately uh, isn't able to join us this evening, fears that people are not valuing our landscapes because minority ownership of Scotland's lands have placed a very narrow version of value on them. Writing from the Egg Island community, Lucy Conway shows how Cameron's vision is already happening uh, through community ownership on that island. While Leslie Riddich wants Scotland to follow its Nordic cousins to see the proliferation of wee huts so that the experience of nature is no longer the preserve of the middle classes. And as we're about to hear, Doug Johnson sees this valuing of nature extending through outdoor learning. Indeed, there are a lot of contributions that in their different ways seek more creative approaches to education, going wildly beyond the normal syllabus in some cases. Colin McCready, Roddy Wimble and Ali Bain each want to see imagination, the arts and creativity more prominent in the curriculum. And Colin helpfully even provides a week-by-week -week course for us to follow. Shona Reid and Kate Mollison insist that all children should have music lessons because of the skills of collaboration, discipline and happiness that such achievements would bring them. And Christopher Young proposes the studio in which the technical sides of arts production could also be taught. Some have gone further to insist on new forms of national service in the arts. David Gregg insists that it's not easy to be fascist while performing a kick line in Oklahoma. To get to these futures, some contributors highlight the need to confront political choices that are presented to us as inevitable. Tressa Burke challenges the everyday exclusions to full participation by people with disabilities. And we can see things that have happened as a result of the pandemic, such as an event like this, such as the rise of working from home, as making very clear some of the choices uh, that were made uh, prior to the pandemic. Or indeed homeless policy, where again, the pandemic has shown that we can help to get more people off the streets when it suits the powers that be. Lee Craigie imagines making our city streets welcoming places for cyclists and pedestrians. Carrie Lunan seeks a redesign of our NHS around meaningful doctor-patient relationships rather than metrics. Kerry Hudson imagines a country where no child goes to bed hungry or wakes up in substan substandard housing, while others, including Anton Muscatelli and Danny Garavelli, see a future where the value of migrants is recognised culturally uh, and e as well as economically. And there are suggestions of how to do this, big and small. From Richard Holloway's fundamental reimagining of society from the perspective of those most in need, to more immediate suggestions such as Don Patterson's explanation of the importance of the support from a universal basic income, not just to people's dignity, but also to allow for the possibility of artistic and cultural production for those without family means to pay for it. 
Louise Welsh wants to go further still and gleefully imagines a post-capitalist nation. Now, diverse as this is, and really that was just a handful of the many voices in this book, we're not in any way claiming that this is somehow representative or complete. This work will have to be ongoing. It's the process of discussion, discussion, debate and learning that's as important as the destination. To paraphrase Ali Smith, this book hasn't got an end because everyone in it who gives a damn is working against the kind of end that ends everything. But honestly, we can't hope to do any more than just reveal the tip of the iceberg here tonight. You really need to go and read the book for yourselves <laughs> and dive into its sea of ideas. But for now, we've got a trio of our contributors to whet your appetite. First, Leila Abulela. Leila was born in Cairo, but she's made her home in Aberdeen. She's published five novels and been shortlisted three times for the Women's Prize for Fiction, which is a pretty impressive strike rate. She was the first winner of the Kane Prize for African Writing, and her latest short story collection, Elsewhere, Home, won the Saltire Fiction Book of the Year Award. Leila? Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello, from Aberdeen, yes. <laughs> So you're going to read your uh, piece for yes. us? Yes, yes, I'm going to read my piece. Okay. Um, some countries have doubled the number of public holidays Scotland has. In Indonesia, where my family and I lived for a few years, there were 17 holidays, some of which were more than one day. As expected of a country in which almost 90% of the population are Muslims, there were the two Eid holidays, Al-Fit and Al-Adha, Islamic New Year, the birthday Mawlid of the Prophet Muhammad, and celebration of his nice night journey, the Isra and Mi'raj. There was also Christmas, Easter, and Good Friday. There was New Year's Day and Chinese New Year. That's now adding up to three New Year's Days per year. Hindu and Buddhist feast days were also public holidays, as well as Labor Day. I loved all these holidays, especially when they came midweek my husband and children at home, the working week disrupted. There is no better way to celebrate diversity than by sharing each other's festivals. I would love Scotland to be the same. Fewer working days would enable us all to live better lives. If religious holidays are not to everyone's taste, then how about secular ones? Let's make Valentine's Day a public holiday. Burns Night, Guy Fawkes, Midsummer Summer's Day. If Scotland gains independence, will there be an Independence Day holiday? Imagine. Holidays mean more rest and more togetherness, more precious time, more valuable hours. This great spinning world, let's slow it down. Let's have a break. A break from the internet would be nice too. A relief from the news, a recess from advertising. We do not need to shop 24 seven. We do not need to know the news every hour. We do not need to be able to do every little thing on every single day of the week. For the sake of the climate, we can take time off from electricity, from heating, from traveling, short pauses here and there to catch our breath, to hear the birds, to see the stars, to listen to each other, to fear idle. There is nothing wrong with occasional idleness, staring into space, thinking thoughts or thinking nothing, swinging on a hammock, sitting gazing into the flames. Our fingers need a rest, as do our eyes, our minds. Shopping has become the new oppression, as has acquiring likes on social media, the endless expenses of self-improvement and keeping up with the latest celebrities, 
All this comes at the price of more drudgery, more hours spent earning, more days at work. The four-day week work week is not a fantasy. It has already been adopted in Germany and Denmark to some extent. Fewer working hours are better for our physical and mental health. The four-day work week would reduce pressure on the environment. A 2013 paper published in Global Environmental Change shows that countries with longer working hours consume more resources and emit more carbon. Reduced working hours, they suggest, could contribute to sustainability by decreasing the environmental intensity of consumption patterns. Research by the Trades Union Congress has found that UK full-time staff work almost two hours more than the EU weekly average. Yet staff in Denmark who worked fewer hours were more productive. Resting more and having adequate time for recreation improves the quality of the work we produce. By working fewer hours, we boost our output instead of reducing it. Sadly, the reality in Britain is that many people are working longer hours or the same hours for less pay, working harder to become poorer, working more to end up with less. Writing in the conversation, economist David Spencer says, the continued force of consumerism has acted as a prop to the work ethic. Advertising and product innovation have created a culture where longer hours have been accepted as normal, even while they have inhibited the freedom of workers to live well. More public holidays, regular, uh, religious, secular, or national, a reduction in the working week, time off from the internet, from the media, from travel and energy consumption would reduce carbon footprint and give us more of what really matters. Thanks. Thank you. What was it that uh, specifically prompted you to choose that subject to write about? Um, well, I had the, the, the time scale this month was, you know, very short. So I, had, I thought I have to just think of something very quickly. And uh, I had recently been to a party where I was asked what, uh, if you had to have a superpower, what would you do? And, <laughs> and I had said, I'd make, I'd make Friday a holiday for the, everyone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was, I, so I thought I'd go along with that. And, uh, you know, um, and then it, then I started off with the religious holidays and then I was, as I was writing, I was like, oh no, what if this doesn't convince people? So I veered off into saying, well, let's make Valentine's Day a holiday. And then I, <laughs> and then I went on for the, you know, the four week, um, uh, the four day week, uh, at the end, it sounded uh, more uh, convincing, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's very interesting because, of course, the, the, the world that this book has emerged into is very different from the one that we were in when it was, it was commissioned, when we, when we started to put it together. And in, in a strange kind of way, one of the effects of the pandemic has, has been this notion of perhaps sharing around the limited work that's available. Uh, have you been thinking about that in, in lockdown? Yes, I was, you know, I was thinking, oh, you know, be careful what you kind of hope for now that I've got <laughs> the whole family is, is at home all the time now. <laughs> you know, so I have my husband's at home, my daughter had to come back from university. So uh, that's kind of all that happened. But uh, it's amazing to see that working from home works. I mean, we, we are working, we are producing. 
um, it's um, so it says it does change how you you think about the the you know the need. There's is there really a need for the commuting? Is there really a need for uh, uh, for, for for all these things? Um, I think that's that's fine so long as working from home doesn't become living at work. And that's yes. a fine line that I think some of it we're, we're trying to negotiate yes. a little bit. Yes, yes I think yes. Like if, we're doing, if we're doing working from home, we should actually have a, a law that says no meeting is allowed to last for more than two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, of course, a lot of people can't work from home as well. So, you know, that's, that's also, you know, uh, important to, to, to say, yeah. But with the, with the, the number of jobs that, that will be, appear to be vanishing uh, in this, this, this climate, I think it will be much more important that we have a kind of sharing out of, of the work. Hmm. So, Joe. So next up, Wrong one. we have... <laughs> All the, Joe, all the Joes those. are in this direction. <laughs> Next up, we have, we have Joe Clifford. Uh, Joe is a writer, performer, poet and teacher based in Edinburgh. I love the bio that she provided for our book, which states, Joe Clifford is a proud father and grandmother, playwright, poet and performer. She is the author of 100 plays. She is indeed one of Scotland's leading uh, playwrights and was instrumental in establishing the the reputation of the Traverse uh, Theatre Company in, 19, in the 1980s. As well as this, she has written radio plays and libretti. In 2017, the Saltire Society of Scotland inducted her into the Outstanding Women of Scotland community. Over to you. Oh. Imagine a country. Oh, what if we could? What if we could imagine? And, and, and I ask this because mostly right now I, I find I can't even imagine a country without so many fucking idiots in it. But I try. And, and then I think, how I also want to imagine a country when, where we're not always so angry with each other. Well, we're not always denouncing each other and insulting each other and calling each other by vile names. And then, and then I want to imagine a place where, because we have always been respected, we know how to give respect. So, so we never use the act of making love as, a, as an insult or a threat. Because... We have a respect that goes right down to the very heart of things, to every act of creation. A place where we all feel in the very root of our beings that sex is a beautiful act and an innocent one and a pure one too. And so a place well, we can't even conceive of the need to use words for vagina or penis to insult each other because we know how beautiful it is to have a vagina and we know how beautiful it is to have a penis and we know how much they can give us pleasure. And that respect 
goes to every intelligent and creative act of making or thought. So we don't use words for clever or studious to insult each other. And we deeply understand that everyone has a right to be different. We don't use words that mean stupid to insult each other with. And, and maybe even also we understand where the word idiot comes from. And so, and so we know that once upon a time, idiot didn't mean someone stupid or foolish, but meant something like private citizen or one who minds their own business. And if there was criticism implied, it was because such a person looked after their own affairs and neglected their duties as a citizen and member of the collective, as we all do. Because we've been trained to see ourselves as individuals all our lives. Individuals living in sad, angry solitude and in bitter competition with each other. And yet, maybe somewhere we know, deep inside, that we cannot go on thinking like this. Because the world demands something new of us. And if we're not able, most of us in this cruel world, to enjoy the sexual contact we need or the tender touch we need, we must try not to be ashamed. We must try to reach out to one another. And it's because we mostly can't that so often in our fury and our frustration and our rage, we use these beautiful words as weapons against each other. So this country that is slowly and painfully taking shape inside me is a place where we all understand together, understand that we are all connected, and that what I do in one place has an effect on, a, on an infinite number of other places, because we all live in the one beautiful world. And that it is no use my trying to enrich myself at the expense of another human's poverty. Because if I do that, I am also impoverishing myself. And it is no use my trying to enrich myself by poisoning the planet's air or the planet's soil. Because if I do that, I am also poisoning myself. And also, if I lash out at you and hurt you in my anger and my frustration and my rage, 
I am also hurting myself. And what would happen if this country was a place we, we all knew as intimately and as comfortably as a second beautiful skin? Oh, I know, by myself, I cannot make this country happen. And yet I still think, yes, yes, I will imagine this country and try to live in it as if it was already there. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. And again, listening to that now here when we're so much at a distance and the, the sort of the desire for touch and connection is, 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 is so, so strong. It's so strong. It's, 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 it's quite, almost quite eerie hearing that again. <laughs> um, can you tell us something about how, how you came to that writing this? if you can remember so far back. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a different world, isn't it? It was probably, probably a day when I'd been uh, on social media for a bit, mm. even for five minutes is quite enough. And I, uh, being, being a trans woman, obviously I'm the target of quite a lot of abuse. And there's a lot of, I mean, there's incredible rage and frustration and anger being directed against people like me just now. And I, I was thinking, well, why is it? And why do we use words like the C word? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Well, that means that in some way we hate our bodies, and in particular we hate women's bodies. And how dreadful is that? And then that led me on to thinking about, because it was such a wonderful, generous invitation, how could things be? And I, I have a theory that we are living through the, through the collapse of, a, of one way of thinking about the world. We're, we're living through the end of capitalism, and that's why it's such a confusing and frightening time. And that my duty as a, as a writer is to imagine a post-capitalist world and to write post-capitalist theatre. And so all that is in there as well. Yes. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to hear reading as well, hear, hear Leila reading hers, hear you reading yours, because it, it comes alive in a different way yeah. than it does on the page. <laughs> Mm. Um, and I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but in sort of my practice as a writer is, is to read as I, as I go along, to read out loud to myself, mm. so that I get a sense of, of, of how the words feel. Mm. And it's, so it's, it's a real treat to hear them again. So, Doug, we're going to come to you now. Um, our th third reader tonight is Doug Johnson. Now, Doug was born in Arbroath, but now he lives in Edinburgh. I think of Doug as the renaissance man of Scottish crime fiction. <laughs> he's got a PhD in nuclear physics. Uh, he's not content with having published 12 novels and dozens of short stories. He's also a drummer with the fun-loving crime writers. He's been a writer in residence at a funeral parlour and worked as a music journalist. And he's also the player manager of the Scotland Writers Football Club. But tonight, I get to do a bit of role reversal. Take it away, Doug. One, <laughs> two, three, four. <laughs> Thanks, Val. <laughs> OK. As a writer, I'm painfully aware my day job involves sitting on my lazy bum in a dark room staring at a screen. So many of us these days have sedentary lives, and it's very easy to get stuck in that rut, turn into a basic blob. 
Recently, I've been trying to snap out of it with regular long walks around the various hills of Edinburgh where I live. The resulting improvement in my mental and physical health has been startling, but I'm pretty lucky. I'm self-employed and flexible. I have my own means of transport. I'm not in poverty. What about others less fortunate? This has to start as young as possible. My idea for a future Scotland is to vastly increase funding for access to the outdoors for everyone across the country. And that starts with a massive increase in outdoor learning. Outdoor learning is nothing new, of course. It's a very broad term, taking in any kind of interaction with the natural world, including adventure activities and sports, but also, you know, a wee walk in the woods. As is the case with many things, the Scandinavians are well ahead of the curve. For decades, countries like Denmark and Finland have had a pervasive culture of so-called forest schools in which virtually all learning occurs outdoors. This in part stems from a more nature-based society and startling benefits in both health and education were spotted many years ago when regular exposure to nature was delivered to kids as young as preschool. In Scotland, there is already some outdoor learning, but it is very restricted, patchy in coverage, and most worryingly, it's expensive. My two kids both benefited immensely in Primary 7 from attending a week at an outdoor centre in Argyll. It was their first time away from home, and while they were both a little nervous, they came back after five days completely transformed. Filling their days with abseiling, gorge walking, kayaking and more had increased their confidence and made them grow as young people. The benefits are not just obvious for physical and mental health either. Outdoor learning improves teamwork and social skills, resilience and leadership, all the buzzword guff that the education system requires. It improves society generally and individual people feel better for it. But it costs. Those trips cost hundreds of pounds, something we were lucky that we could afford. And that will be the only time in 13 years of education they will be allowed to do something like that. I would like to see outdoor learning at all levels given a massive increase in funding and a shift in focus to make it free to all and central to the educational experience of every child in a future Scotland. I want regular paid for trips to outdoor learning centres outings into nature in schools' local environments as standard, and improvements to infrastructure to make outdoor learning an everyday experience. Because it works. Back to those Scandinavians again, currently topping all the happiness, contentedness and well-being polls you see in the media, something I believe is at least partly down to a culture of outdoor learning. Nicola Sturgeon recently gave a TED talk about her desire to shift towards a well-being economy, as opposed to the rather outdated GDP as a measure of a country's success. I believe increased outdoor learning would be a key building block for Scotland's future well-being. Thank you. Was there anything specific that made you choose that to write about, Doug? Well, the two of the things that, that I mentioned there, one was literally my slovenly writer habits. <laughs> because it is an incredibly lazy, or it can be a very lazy lifestyle. And we've had this discussion before about, about trying to get exercise and build it in. And actually it's, it's come about um, more so because of lockdown, actually. It has, been, yeah. has made us realise that sitting indoors all day in front of screens <laughs> is perhaps not the healthiest way to live. Uh, and, my, and I really was struck by that experience of my kids when they went to a place called Ben Moore for a week. I mean, it, it, it transformed them. Uh, in a way, and at the same time all this was bubbling around my head, my, uh, my wife works for uh, an outdoor charity called Venture Scotland uh, who work with young people from disadvantaged backgrounds uh, and who are dealing with all sorts of maybe mental health and addiction issues and all sorts of other things. Uh, and it's quite intensive work, but they have um, remarkable transformations for these young people actually. And they do a huge amount of work and it's tangible, it's actually tangible. You can see people's lives being turned around 
by trips to bothies or just simple outdoor learning experiences or excursions and things like that. So all of that was kind of bubbling around in my head at the same time. It took me a while to come to that to write about because it was the, the sort of brief was to be optimistic. <laughs> and the, honestly, I had a couple of ideas first that were like not optimistic. <laughs> I, the first couple of things I thought of were actually things that I like I didn't want the country to be. I thought, no, I can't write about that, stupid. <laughs> try, and get in the, try and get in the positive mindset, Doug. So that's what I came up with. And, and, and I, I really feel strongly about it, actually, because uh, like Leila said as well, like when you have the initial idea, but then you start to do a bit of research about it. So I was doing lots of reading about it. And of course, my wife is telling me, oh, yes, oh, there's like, firing whole, like emailing my whole bunch of stuff to read about outdoor learning because yeah. it's so successful in, in all these countries where they try it. It's great. And I think, I mean, just, just going back, the simple thing of, of going for walks in lockdown, yeah. um, you know, we, we, we went out every night yeah. uh, and it became an important kind of part of our, our lives, of actually coming together at the end of the day and talking to each other about what we'd been thinking about and what we'd been doing. But also the people that we saw when we were out walking, we, we quite often ran into the same people and, and you know, after, not really knowing them, but then we'd start having, exchanging a few words across the street. And the atmosphere generally was very positive, considering the awful things that were going on all around us. It seemed to be the act of, of getting out and about, just, just out walking, seemed to lift people up. I mean, I mean, it's, it's weirdly self-evident once you do it. It's like, why the hell wasn't I doing this before? And there's more and more scientific research, you know, that says for all sorts of reasons, you know, heart disease and everything, all kind of health, and, you know, huge impact on mental health physical exercise. I mean, I think that, that was kind of, it was a, a well-known thing among some people, but it, it just, it's so glaringly obvious now that I think something has to be done to make that more available. And it's, I mean, these are all interlinked things. I mean, the poverty comes into it, obviously, uh, and inequality is, is a massive part of it. But, so I think it's about a, a change in attitude to these things more than anything else. Like you said, Joe, about um, getting homeless people off the street if, uh, if there's a will. Yeah. Uh, higher up and it's like all sorts of things if there's a will to do them then th th then they can be done yeah and it's really interesting the way that I mean you articulated it very directly in terms of of, of education and starting uh, young with children but a number of the of the pieces talk about nature in different ways and the barriers to to some people being able to access it and and I, I guess we've been seeing that at the end of of lockdown as well the, the the kind of debates over what nature's for and who should be there and what they should be doing um, in, in terms of getting folks outside as well. Yeah. So, so we now have some questions for all three of you. Um, Although, we, looking at the time, at the we time, also need to bring the audience we're in. Bringing, well, well, we will bring the audience into to some of these questions. So, um, this is your, this is your I know, question, isn't it? I know, well, you've, you started talking. <laughs> so. <laughs> you see, look, 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 seamless, seamless. line here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I used to think we never met. Um, so... We've kind of hinted at this quite a bit already in some of our discussion, but um, I, had, I had a version of this question, but the, the, uh, we've been sent a question from Robin H, who says, do you think the contributions would be any different uh, if they were written after the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, Leila, can we start with you? Would you, do you think you would, if we asked you now, would you be, would you be writing something different? Yes, in a way, I would tone it down a bit because I've, in a way, I've kind of got what I wanted uh, in a roundabout way with the pan with the pandemic. But in it, but in another way, I feel that that uh, what I've written now after the pan the pandemic, people will understand it better. 
it's almost like that, like they they're they're able to live now this 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 kind of life that I was kind of that was hinting at, that you know more time at home, a, a bit of stillness, less of this madness of the shopping, and you know, and how unnecessary all these things are, and that we don't need to be traveling too much, and we don't you know you know it could be a little bit less than than it was before. Yeah. I mean, certainly when I heard you reading it, and, and it's, it's fascinating, I've had the pleasure of reading all of the uh, articles so many times, and each time I read them, because it's a different day, because I read the contributions in a different order, um, or we're sitting in different contexts, they, they resonate so differently. And, and hearing you read uh, this evening, it sounded like some of the things that, that people were talking about at the beginning of lockdown, when there was that burst of optimism, where people were talking about hearing the birds, uh, were talking about um, valuing a whole, sort of, a whole range of essential workers who previously had been dismissed as non-skilled and therefore not valuable. And we, we, there seemed to be a, a kind of change in the way that we've, we valued things, we valued connections, we've, and, and this obviously links to what, what Joe was saying as well. Um, so I'm surprised to, say that, to hear you say that you would step away from it, because in a sense, I want to step closer towards what you, what you wrote. <laughs> well, maybe not step away from it, but, um, uh, you know, maybe it's not... Um, I think that we kind of got it already, that we've kind of now have... We, we, we now have gone further in this stage and that, that we could keep it, as you said, as you said, that, that that we could we could keep on with it. It's not a new. It's not a novel. I novel sort of suggestion anymore. It has become the pandemic has made it kind of more accessible and more uh, you know uh, easier to imagine. I suppose, yeah. And Joe, what? How would you approach this differently? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that we did to begin with see a certain sort of optimism that the people being more helpful and more supportive. But recently we've seen um, a rise of, 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 of right wing behaviour, of, of intolerance. Um, and, and we have uh, and Rishi Sunak came all the way to Scotland to tell us that we were a powerhouse brand. Um, <laughs> how, how would you address this, this differently now? I, I think I'd be more radical, actually. I think, I think what the pandemic has shown us is that the way the world actually is running, has been run, is, isn't working. It's not working. The economy isn't working. Education isn't working. Um, and, and, and there needs to be radical change. That's, that's what has become really apparent through this uh, pandemic. And one of the desperately sad things is the way the incompetence and lack of imagination of the Westminster government is trying to take us back to the way things were before and make a lot of money out of this yes. on the side, which is disgraceful. Um, so I'd be, I'd be angrier, I suspect. I'd be more despairing, but I'd also be more hopeful because a crack has opened. And as many people have pointed out, it's through the cracks that the light shines through. But it's very interesting, just very interesting in terms of, of leaders. One thing that, that, that you, you were talking about on, on Saturday when you were speaking to Joe Bakewell at this very festival was how um, something that the more successful leaders had in common, apart from being female on the whole, um, was that they, they are readers of fiction, avid and well-known readers of yeah, fiction. Yeah. Um, and just as we sort of started off this book, 
sort of suggesting that the imagination fiction is not a luxury, it's no, not no, a, no, an no. incidental, but is absolutely at the heart of effective leadership. Yeah. Because yeah. you can understand other people's yeah. perspectives. Yeah. You don't just have your own view reflected no. back. And I thought that was a really, a very interesting thing to say, Thank dear. You. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, Professor. Yeah, <laughs> empathy is so incredibly important. Yes, empathy and, uh, and imagination. Well, it, kind of comes, it comes back to that thing I mentioned just at the end of my piece about Nicola Sturgeon's thing about the uh, well-being economy. Which you know, she's not. I mean, she's not the first person. You, you, again, it's very, very much in keeping with the people who have dealt with the pandemic best, like New Zealand and Iceland yep. and places like that. But um, they're kind of going in the same direction. And I think that is, it's, it's that's a fundamental shift in people's attitudes to, to what they prioritise. I think over like I mean GDP, things like GDP is completely pointless. I mean that's basically like you say it's just basically capitalism on a stick. Yep. It's pointless. Uh, and so trying to think about all the different ways that you can make people's uh, physical and mental health better is I mean mm. it's a huge shift. But I think I think you're right, Joe, that it, it it feels like that that's the direction of travel a little bit. I think that there is a there is a groundswell from things like. Um, environmental protests, Black Lives Matter and things like that, that people are really as if they've just had enough mm. of the old system. Enough, yeah. but, but can I, I'm going to bring in another question from the audience here, which I think picks up on that really nicely. And this is from Elaine O, oh, who says, uh, Leila Abelela is almost prophetic. Um, many people are now working from home, schools are closed, the carbon footprint is reduced. But she says, it's led to depression in many cases, which is not, I suppose, what we were expecting. Can we change our lives? And I guess this, you, we had a question as well about, you know, in this situation, can we still be hopeful? Um, can can, I, can, can we can change or are we going to slip back into the old ways? Sorry, Leila, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, no, no. I think that this, this depression feeling is almost a swing back from, from, the, from, the, from the mania of, 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 the, of the kind of previous life. And then it should, it should balance out when people get used to uh, a more a more balanced life, you know, going outdoors more. This should be, the, the, uh, you know, it, it, you you will you will start to feel that after after a while. I mean, this is what I'm kind of want to say to the person who's who's asking the question. So it it, it um, uh, it's just an instinct when if you're in, in a in a going through a buzz or through an excitement afterwards you feel a kind of a let down but then afterward after that you kind of balance uh, um, eventually that's what I want to say. I think it's important to note the fact that if we're talking about people suffering depression we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are dying <laughs> and you know many people are, are isolated living alone or shielding uh, and so for you know for a, a lot of people this is an inc I mean it's still an incredibly stressful time there's quite a lot of noise about that at the start but that seems yeah. to have kind of yeah. drifted you know kind of faded away now but those problems are still there people still can't hug each other yeah. uh, and people yeah. still have to yeah. stay apart and yeah. you know a lot of people are really still struggling a lot and so yeah. much unemployment yeah. many many people Financial are losing their jobs yes. and uh, again the the um, the chancellor <laughs> rishi sunak is behaving so stupid i mean this weekend how many hundred thousand people are threatened with eviction mm -hmm. from their homes I agree. I think I think the the real COVID catastrophe is yet to come. It has, yeah. And yeah. in in that situation, it's difficult to be entirely optimistic. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to be optimistic at all, in fact. Yeah. But um, you know, at, at, at my at my lowest moments, I think it's going to get worse. But then it will get better. Mm -hmm. 
that we'll reach a point where we, enough of us reach critical mass to say we cannot continue no. like this. No. It has to change. It has to change. And it may have to get a lot worse. And I think that's something that uh, we have to actually yeah. accept yeah. And, and be prepared to fight back against yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask a final question, which you've, you've kind of... Um, uh, you've, you've challenged before I've even asked it. Um, I'll be in trouble tonight. <laughs> because in, in a sense there's that, that, okay, so we've imagined the country, we've got this great range of, of, of visions and ideas and, and hopes. How do we get there? How do we make it happen? Um, this, is, this is, we're in a book festival. This is, I don't know if I dare say this is just a book, um, but you know, what next? What, what do we do? Tumbleweed. <laughs> just tumble, just tumble, yeah. We knew that there would be a tumbleweed moment. Well, well we, I think we, what we, didn't, we, we deliberately didn't ask politicians to contribute to this because yeah. they have plenty of opportunities to, uh, to speak to this. Uh, and I think that one of the things that we hoped this book would do would be to hold their feet to the fire. Um, but one of the things that's come out from this that a lot of people have, have said to us, people in education, people, teachers and in universities, have said that they see this as an exercise they can give to their students yeah. to say, Sit down, imagine the country you want to live in. Uh, and if that happens, I would be absolutely delighted. Uh, I would like this to be the first of many Imagina countries, not just in this country, but all over the world, for people to decide the future they want. And then we can maybe start to work towards it. We mustn't despair. No. That's, that's the thing. Don't despair. Take, do whatever we can, however little it seems. But it, every little thing has an effect all over the world, however tiny and insignificant it is, we have to keep moving on. And as you said, the crack is now there. The crack is there. And, uh, and Let's I, widen it. I think the, 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 the really exciting thing was, is, is seeing so obviously things that we've been told mm. were beyond discussion, yeah. beyond debate. Yeah. This is just the way things are. Oh, hang on a minute, we can change it yeah. <laughs> overnight. Yeah. It's clearly a decision. And uh, you know, people like you know Danny Dorling and others have been talking for some time that about homelessness being a political decision. Yeah. Other countries have made yeah. a decision not to yeah. have it as a, an issue, and 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 a whole range of other mm. things as well. Yeah, and there are things that we can change. Uh, and and as I say, we should be holding politicians' feet to the fire, um, and making them confront the issues that, that matter to us, mm. not the ones that they think should matter mm. to them. Uh, and it's, just, it's just it's an important sort of starting point, this book, because I mean, you know, reading through all the other contributions, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that I hadn't that hadn't ever occurred to me, like <laughs> teaching philosophy in primary school. Yeah, but yeah. as soon as I read it, I thought, what a great idea, yeah, yeah. you know, and there's, there were so many of them, you know, about half of them had never occurred to me before. But I thought, yes, that makes perfect sense. And so that just I mean, just writing it, it's not of like a, you know, it's not quite a field of dreams, build it and they will come type thing. But at least it's on the page there so it can start to get people talking about it. And that was exactly how we'd set the book up because we had a long discussion about, okay, how do we structure it? We had debates about what order and eventually we just went, Alphabetical, very imaginative. <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but then we had a conversation about: should we do it alphabetically by first name or by surname? <laughs> but, but what was? But what we liked about that was that um, we this this picks up on a couple of questions that the others have said uh, have asked us, and I'm afraid we're really running out of time. But um, you know, in terms of how we chose people, we tried to get a range of people who who had a, a range of voices, not not just things that 
would be agreeing with our position. We wanted things that would challenge us. We wanted, as I said, this kind of uh, multi-voice sort of approach. And we hoped that there would be at least one person that would draw everyone in, that they might see someone on the list and think, oh, I'd like to see what, what they've written, and then just continue into the next piece. I mean, they're quite short uh, pieces. There's time to move on to the next one. And that's when we would, we would hope people would be surprised by what they came up against. And, and, and it is this idea of, of a discussion and a debate being about encountering ideas that we wouldn't otherwise encounter, encounter views, experiences um, uh, in, that we wouldn't otherwise come across in our everyday life. And you can encounter those voices by pressing the buy the book button. <laughs> seamless, <laughs> absolutely seamless. Or you can go to the, the online bookshop for the, the book festival, which is shop at, sorry, shop.edbookfest.co.uk. That's shop.edbookfest.co.uk, where you can buy this marvellous book and lots and lots of other books. And all the profits go to support the ongoing book festival. Um, you can also press the donate button, which will help the book festival survive and, and continue into the future. And I'd like to thank the tech team for bringing this so seamlessly to you. I'd like to thank all our contributors here this evening. And I would like to thank the Open University Scotland for sponsoring this event and making it possible. Thank you for tuning in. And tell all your friends, if they missed it, they can watch it again <laughs> uh, on the Edinburgh Book Festival site. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.